the second lesson comes to us this morning from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 46 to 55. Hear the word of the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. And holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning especially, I know that our hearts and our minds continue to be with those in California who have lost their homes to fire and who are still fending off those flames as we speak right now. The last that I heard this morning was that they were evacuating the Santa Barbara Zoo, um, and I haven't heard anything Uh, since then, but I know that we're all checking on a regular basis. As far as I know, the fires are still not totally contained. And winter, ironically, tends to be one of the hardest times to have a fire along the coast of California, because unlike the rest of the state and unlike many other parts in the country, the coast, the California coast specifically, has one of the most unique climates in the country, the winter days can actually be warm and clear and windy, which was the reason for the spread of all of this fire, creating some of the worst conditions for fire that we have in our country. Flip side is that the summer days can can present something that's called an inversion. The hot air that's usually closest to the Earth's surface is higher up because it's forced in from the inland, and the cold air that is usually farthest from the Earth's surface is pushed down because it's closest to the sea, to the ocean. And along the coast, what this translates to was something that I experienced all the time in my childhood and yet could never quite explain it. But what this translates to is a cold, biting fog that holds its grip along the outline of the coast, while inland, just a few miles, is actually a hot air with a summer sun that bakes down in exceedingly high temperatures. 
And so what this ends up happening is that during the summer, specifically, one of the things that you learn is to stay on the coast with your hat and your down coat and your gloves, or you head inland with your sunscreen and your tank top and your flip-flops. That's the temperature inversion that happens along the California coast during the summer. So along the, along the coast, the winter is one of the times when this inversion effect that I just described is a lot less likely because the hot air inland isn't around as much and the result is actually that the coast is more temperate than ever and even can become a bit warmer. You see, inversions don't follow the normal patterns that we're used to. They have to be learned. They have to be studied. They surprise us. They don't follow the rules that we expect out of them. And they're maybe not unpredictable, but they are unexpected. And they're real. Inversions are real. You might be thinking about different places where you've seen this same hot, cold air inversion. Anytime you see that low-lying cloud cover, that's part of what's happening. There's an inversion that's happening there. Sometimes it happens around the Olympic Peninsula. Inversions happen in real life and in real time and in real space. And in the Gospel of Luke this morning, the text that we read, this story about Mary is an inversion. It's one of the most extreme and important inversions that we get in our Gospels and in our Scripture. And let me ask you a question to help make a little bit more sense of this. If you were a first century person... Where do you go to learn about the coming of God's promised one? Where do you go to learn about the promises that God has given to the world? Where do you go to make sense of the words in Scripture? Well, even if you were from the East, even if you weren't from the surrounding area of Jerusalem, you knew to go to Jerusalem. That's where the Magi go. And that's where other folks would go as well. That's where you go to learn about what it is that the scriptures mean. And you go not just to Jerusalem, but you go to the palace of the king, and maybe in tandem with that, with the temple that would have existed in Jerusalem. And between those two institutions, you would hope that you would actually encounter something about what it is that the scriptures mean. You go to the best scribes and interpreters that you can get, and that's what the Magi do. They go to these particular institutions, and they're expecting to get the story from that space. You go to the places of power, to the institutions that have the money, that have the weight, that have the traditions, that have the history. But in Luke... Those parts of the story only come into play on the margins. Luke could actually care less about what's going on in Jerusalem. He is interested instead in what is happening with Mary and with Elizabeth. There's an irony here. 
We have to put on our first century lenses in order to see that. The text that we read is Mary's response to Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, as a pregnant mother, has a comment about pregnancy to another pregnant mother. That is the exchange that happens between them. It's one pregnant mother to another. And I just have something that I want to note here, and maybe if this isn't your particular story, you can share it with somebody who it might be. So friends who have struggled with infertility, this part of the story is often hard. It's frustrating, and it's frustrating for me as well, that often that the only power that a woman has within the stories of Scripture are bound to their connection to fertility. And this makes our women heroes almost in some ways inaccessible to to some of us because it once again pits some women against another. The fertile get matched with the fertile, and the infertile are sort of on the outside of that. But if just for one second, if you could imagine that the only way that a woman would have enough power to come into this story is actually through fertility, that that's the only way that she could at all gain voice here, then maybe just for one second, you might be able to find the space, perhaps the forgiveness for the writers for talking about women the only way that they knew how. And this isn't an excuse, but we have been divorced from our women forebears for too long and for many reasons. And we need to remember how important they were, how brave they were, how strong they were, and this is not because of their fertility. This is about the choices that they made with the challenges that they faced. So suddenly, in this moment, through this conversation of women's talk, Mary both reflects and refracts. She notices what's going on around her, but she also breaks open this idea of what is happening within her. She notices that God is at work, and Mary sings God is at work in me, and not only in me, but in all of the signposts that I see happening within my culture. And Mary, through this, becomes an agent of inversion. The conversation is exchanged not in the capital, Jerusalem, but in the far hill country. And as a matter of fact, if you notice and read a few verses earlier in this text, this story takes place so far away from Jerusalem that we don't even learn the name of the village that this is happening in. And it's so far away from the major metropolitan area that it has its own priest who is able to offer prayers and incense on behalf of the people. Mary is on the widest periphery that she can be. She is literally, as she speaks these words, on the margins of Jerusalem. And not only that, but this conversation is also between two women. And not only that, but after this song, this burst of joy, after this exuberant celebration about the great inversion that is happening within Mary herself, she closes her remarks at the very end. And then Luke adds this interesting detail that she stays hidden for the next three months. 
She doesn't go anywhere. She doesn't proclaim her message to the rooftops. This is a message that is on the margins for those in the margins, and that is where it's going to stay. It's a hidden conversation, not front and center. It's on the outskirts. It's not a policy, but it's a conversation on the margins. It's a story of inversion that is bearing witness to God's anointed one as the great inversion. That is bearing witness to the promises, that the the very fact that the promises that God issued to Abraham are actually attached to this God of historical inversion. And so, if that's the case, one of the questions that I've been asking myself as I've been thinking about this beautiful text throughout this week is why, oh why, do we keep bringing God into the world of institutional weight and power? When the God that we worship, the God of Christmas, the God of the manger, comes instead to the powerless and helpless woman Mary who has to stay secret for her own safety and the only way that she chooses to be known is through the way of inversion. Why, oh why, do we keep thinking that God's voice is the strongest when it is echoed through a man of power and a man in power. When from the very beginning, God's voice was heard in the most beautiful song through the teenage girl running into the hill country to save herself from the halls of power. You see, the power of inversion is not just a good idea in theory. It's a real phenomenon that can actually turn the tide of the expected. It is instead the power of inversion that can actually physically change the world and the landscape that we have come to expect and anticipate as normal. And so for the sake of our daughters, and I'm going to have to ask you to forgive this wordplay because it was totally unintentional, but for the sake of our daughters, what we need as we move into this Christmas season is we need a Merry Christmas, M-A-R-Y, a Christmas that is focused around the person of Mary. And for the sake of our sons that are bearing the weight of this unrealistic masculinity that we see in every hallway of our culture, we need a Merry Christmas, M-A-R-Y. And for the sake of our families that are raising their families in a world that happens to be at this point, and there's nothing that we can do to stop it, that happens to be breaking the binaries, we need a Merry Christmas, M-A-R-Y. You see, we don't get to have Jesus without Mary. We don't get to have Jesus without this teenage refugee who is running for the hills, holding the secrets of inversion in her very being, and singing a hidden song that only Elizabeth at that point gets to hear. 
Friends, Jesus doesn't arrive through the halls of power. Jesus arrives through an inversion. An upside-down event that is only recognized and held dear by someone who has the power to get that. A woman who is alone, who is hidden. A woman who knows that God does not only see her, but God chooses her. And chooses her alone. And she says, yes, let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we need through your eyes to once again see this person of Mary. To not see you as you alone, but to see you as connected to this woman. We do not get to have the manger without Mary saying yes. We do not get to have the shepherds and the wise men and the singing and the celebration of next week without the courage of this teenage girl. So we thank you so much for her and the courage of all of our daughters. In your name, amen.